This is John DeFalb from John Sandoz Bookshop in Chelsea, London, bringing you a second pair of readings from Ben Schott's wonderful Jeeves and the Leap of Faith. The next episode takes place in Cambridge, whither Bertie and Jeeves have zipped to play their parts in intricate schemes. Leaving the McCausland's to their leafy bower, Jeeves and I strolled back across the lawn, where we were accosted by a wild-eyed chap in a mismatched suit, holding an enormous bobbin of twine. Might I intrude, gentlemen? He had the well-clipped English of a native Austrian. What do you say, please, about this path? Path? Yes, this path in the grass on which we stand. Huh? I could not agree with you more. He shook his fist furiously. The path is terrible. Every path here is terrible. The garden looks like a, a birthday cake. I see, I said, though I decided he didn't. Will you assist, please, for just one moment? He took from an inside pocket a worn blue notebook and located a stump of pencil from behind his ear. I am planning a new design for these paths, and must urgently take some measurements. Before I might conjure any reasonable objection, our new friend had guided Jeeves to a spot in the centre of the lawn, and handed him the twine's loose end. Stand here, please, and hold this. Me, he beckoned to follow him as he played out his spool in an easterly direction, counting off a hundred paces before tapping a spot on the grass with his foot. Stand here, please, and hold this. He wrapped a loop of twine around my thumb, and then marched off to the north, loudly enumerating his steps as he unspooled his bobbin, twice round an ancient oak, and off out of sight. I stood staring at his departure, expecting at the very least some sort of encouraging cry. But silence reigned, and nothing happened. Silence reigned for a further five minutes, and eventually I called across the lawn to Jeeves. Do you think he's coming back? I'm not overly optimistic, sir. Hmm. In time, two elderly black-gowned fellows entered the garden. One was inordinately fat, the other cadaverously thin. Excuse me, gentlemen. Jeeves called across the lawn. Might you be able to assist us? The men diverted their trajectory and stalked towards me with a distinctly hostile step. Yes, the fatter fellow demanded. What do you want? Uh, well, I faltered, having no inkling of Jeeves's plan. Is this a rag, young man? I have the lowest possible regard for student antics and refuse absolutely to be ragged. His colleague was of the same angry mind. The dean is quite right. Furthermore, this garden is out of bounds to all but fellows. I'm afraid to say my mouth rather flapped open, like a rain-drenched windsock, an aunt once said, before Jeeves intervened. We are from the Ordnance Survey, he shouted, and have permission to gather preliminary mapping coordinates for a proposed retriangulation. Retriangulation, eh? The thin man mused, before shouting, Where's your theodolite? In the automobile, 
Jeeves shouted back. "'In fact, sir, this explains our request for assistance. "'If you might momentarily hold our positions on this line, "'we will return with our equipment and complete our calculations.' "'The fellows exchanged a doubtful glance before finally relenting. "'I suppose it's all right if it's for the Ordnance Survey.' "'Thank you, sir.' Now, if one of you might take my place over here, and the other where my colleague is standing, we will be just a few minutes. Jeeves made an elaborate show of correctly positioning the fellows, adjusting the twine an inch or so back and forth, before bowing in thanks and whisking me off towards freedom. We were almost at the garden's gate when one of the fellows cried, Stop! We turned round. Why is a clergyman working for the Ordnance Survey? Jeeves's reply was instantaneous. Spiritual outreach, sir. That was quick thinking, I said, as we ankled back to town through the gardens of Clare. Thank you, sir. I wonder how long they'll wait. But t tell me, who was that queer cove with a spool of twine and the German accent? The Austrian accent. Jeeves gently corrected. I may be mistaken, sir, but I think that was the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. So, not an unhinged gardener. Dr. Wittgenstein is the author of the Tractatus. A short history of farm machinery in the Ukraine? The Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, sir, concerns itself with a picture theory of language. The title, as you may recall, is a reference to an earlier work by Baruch Spinoza. Ah, yes, you're, you're, you're chum spinny. But why is Earwig, what's his name, so H under the sea about garden paths? Seems a little ultra vires for the philosopher, or do I mean infradig? I could not say, sir. And whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. By this time we'd reached Clare Bridge, and I stooped beneath a yew-tree to collect two sturdy twigs. What do you say, Jeeves? Fancy a game of poo-sticks? It's seldom that I, or indeed anyone, steals a march on Jeeves, but the look on his face as I held up the sticks was one for the family album. I beg your pardon, sir? Poo-sticks! Winnie the Pooh! A.A. Milne! Don't tell me you've never come across Winnie the Pooh, or House of Pooh Corner. I didn't think there was a book in existence that Jeeves had not read, digested, and in great part memorised, yet I, it was clear from his incredulity that I was speaking the richest banana oil. And so I briefly sketched out the hundred-acre wood hypothesis from Pooh and Piglet to Owl and Eeyore, not neglecting, of course, Christopher Robin or Rabbit's friends and relations. Jeeves tilted his head like a confused whippet. Winnie the Pooh is a bear, sir. He is. A and Piglet is a piglet, sir. Indeed. And there are two kangaroos, sir. That's right. In East Sussex, sir. Yep. I hope you'll forgive the observation, sir, but this all seems highly improbable, ethrozoologically speaking. Moreover, to approach the matter from a Darwinian perspective, why would the stronger animals not simply eat the weaker ones? They're children's books, I cried, thankful I hadn't broached the subject of heffalumps. Were you never a child? 
Briefly, sir, the predicament proved unavoidable. And were there no such books in the Jeevesian household? I recall Der Strulpeter, sir, a German cautionary tale in which various children are punished for their moral failings. You could see where the man amassed his brains, but you had to wonder if the knowledge was worth the recurrent nightmares. I pressed on. So, push sticks. Fancy a game? Possibly, sir. How does one play? Briefly, I set out the rules and regs, giving him his choice of twig, and we took up positions on the upstream side of Clare Bridge. On three, Jeeves. One, two, throw. It was, I suppose, inevitable that Jeeves had a natural flair for poo sticks, and I wondered if there was a German word for one who, in an instant, transforms beginner's luck into professional expertise. Time and again his twigs caught hidden eddies and sped ahead of my sluggish logs, which inevitably became tangled in bindweed or inexplicably sank without trace. Best of three turned into best of five and then best of seven. By the time Jeeves had scored nine straight victories in a row, I had run out of patience and twiggage. What a remarkable game, sir, Jeeves declared as we trooped back to Keys. I shall seek out the works of Mr. Milne without delay. The final episode comes from much later in the book. You don't need to know the labyrinthine skullduggery that has intervened, only that Bertie's Aunt Agatha has come to dinner. The reason being that she's tried to get rid of Jeeves, and a plan has been cooked up with Jeeves and another butler called Crawshaw to foil Aunt Agatha's plan. Having clambered out of my golfing plus fours and into the supper-time soup and fish, I pushed through the green baize door to find Jeeves and Crawshaw scheming over a pot of tea. So, gentlemen, how does this intrigue work? It's almost 6.30, and from the pricking of my thumbs, Aunt Agatha Broomsticks have a closer. If you will permit me, sir, Jeeves replied, I would rather not say. Much of the scheme's effect will derive from the ingenuousness of your response. You mean I've got to wing it? Precisely, sir. Do you agree, Crawshaw? Yes, sir. I only hope you don't take my words or deeds too much to heart. And this sounded pretty sinister, but before the matter might be discussed any further, a Wagnerian thumb on the doorbell indicated either that Aunt Agatha was upon us or that the Royal Bavarian Flying Corps had popped by to read the meter. Crawshaw rose to answer the call, and with an uncertain glance at Jeeves, who had turned his attention to the crossword, I followed. "'Who are you?' Aunt Agatha demanded, striding into the hall and discarding her hat, coat, gloves, and brolly. "'This, dear aunt, is Jeeves's replacement, Crawshaw.' She gave him a slow, sceptical up and down, and was peeved to find nothing amiss. "'Good evening, Crawshaw,' she conceded. Good evening, Mrs. Gregson. What shall I call you, Aggie? It was obvious that Aunt Agatha hadn't heard this remark, because Crawshaw remained upright and breathing, rather than dead on the carpet in a pool of his own blood. 
Anxious to exploit this momentary blip of deafness, I led Aunt Agatha swiftly to the sitting-room, where the drinks trolley shimmered like an oasis. Now what can I fix you? Absinthe, Ricky? Absinthe, Swiss? Absinthe, Frappe? I will take a glass of milk. Are you sure? We have a lake of absinthe to swim through. It is good for the digestion to drink a glass of milk before eating so very late at night, Bertram. You should try it. For all Jeeves's professional foresight, there was no milk to hand, and so I deployed the bell. Almost instantly Crawshaw appeared, and so instantly, in fact, it was obvious he'd been earwigging at the keyhole. You rang, sir? Mrs. Gregson will take a glass of milk. Oh, with pleasure, sir. Cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk, pigeon's milk. A milk, milk, Crawshaw. Milk, milk, sir? Milk, milk. Will everyone please stop saying milk? Aunt Agatha cried. Very good, madam. Crawshaw bowed, mooing loudly as he left the room. Aunt Agatha looked like she'd just been punched. Did that man just moo? Uh, how now? Like a cow? And then she did something I'd never have believed had I not heard it with my own credulous ears. She mooed like a cow, a long, luxurious, velvety, bovine moo. There was a pause. I don't think so, I said, and I suspect I would have remembered. The milk was delivered in silence, and Aunt Agatha began her customary tour of inspection, testing horizontal surfaces for dust, straightening bibelots and knick-knacks, and ensuring her hideous portrait of Mackintosh had pride of place. On several occasions I attempted to broach the subject of Vonka Pink, our asinine engagement, her shaming arrest, my triumphant vindication, but Aunt Agatha, like a mosquito under the netting, never stayed still long enough to be swatted. Every time I plucked up the courage to speak, she opened a withering new front of domestic complaint, until finally, my head spinning, I admitted defeat. Whether I liked it or not, a line had been drawn, and my Vonka victory was to be as fleeting as it had been fabulous. You may be wondering why I didn't detonate Leviathan's bombshell concerning Aunt Agatha's secret life as a gambling fiend. Let me assure you that I very much wanted to and had already envisaged the look on her dial as I casually let slip the name Arbuthnot Scratch. Sadly, Jeeves's cooler counsel had prevailed. Repeating his grand masterly advice about queens and endgames, he advised me to keep this particular keg of gunpowder dry for the next time I was under siege, and there was bound to be a next time for, as he said, Ants Longa Vita Brevis. I rang the bell for supper and led her to the dining-room. The table had been set for three. Is someone joining us? Aunt Agatha sniffed. I don't think so. Why is there an extra place, Crawshaw? Well, sir, it being my first day, I naturally assumed. Uh, no? Oh, well, please yourself. He cleared away the superfluous setting with a belligerent clatter. I suppose you'll be wanting wine. That, that's right. Good stuff, he stage whispered, 
or the cheap. Oh, what? Just a joke. He ruffled my hair, back in a jiff. Aunt Agatha stared at his departure with stunned incredulity, overwhelmed by her options for grievance. But before she could marshal her arsenal of outrage, Crawshaw was back with a bottle of Chablis, from which he dispensed three full-to-the-brim measures. With a hearty bung-ho, he drained his glass, clicked his heels, wiped his mouth on the edge of the tablecloth, and left. Where, Aunt Agatha vibrated with consternation, did you find that man? It wasn't easy, I can tell you, I said. Not many chaps free at the moment, and he's the very best the agency had. If that is true, Bertram, I despair for this once proud nation. Seconds later, Crawshaw kicked open the door, juggling two scalding bowls of tepid cockaliki, much of which he slopped on the floor. Salt? Pepper, madam? He nudged her with his elbow. Gentleman's relish? A spoon as traditional? Aunt Agatha observed. Oops, Daisy, I'll nab one from the pantry. He returned with a battered and heavily soiled ladle, which he held up to the light, spat upon, and then polished with the fat end of his tie. Bon appetit! Aunt Agatha stared at the utensil, as if at a putrid rat. Tell me, Crawshaw, where was your previous position? You won't credit it, madam, but I've been on my heels for a spell. Aunt Agatha indicated she found the idea remarkably easy to credit. Before that, though, I was with the Duke of Strathern. Her lips puckered into a disbelieving moo. A duke? Yep. Me and Charlie Boy were together a good few years. And you left the duke's service? Why? Oh, this and that. He gave her a saucy seaside wink. And a bit of the other. I would have been on Easy Street, except it ended up being twins. Twins? I gasped fearing he'd gone too far, far too far. Boy and a girl. Luckily, they're the spit of the governor. So where's the armour? Before the full implications of Crawshaw's confession could surmount Art Agatha's besieged sense of propriety, he'd whistled his way out of the room. We ate our soup in silence. Aunt Agatha using my spoon, I using a fork. This agonising culinary standoff was interrupted by the doorbell, closely followed by raised voices, a scuffle, some honest-to-goodness shouting, and then the smashing of what sounded like my porcelain bust of W.G. Grace. Aunt Agatha glared at me through hooded eyes, the face that drowned a thousand kittens. In time, the shouting stopped, the front door slammed, and Crawshaw appeared, flushed and perspiring, to collect our bowls. Who, who was that at the door, Crawshaw? Door, sir? We heard the doorbell most distinctly. I don't think so, sir. You should get your luggage checked. 
The entree arrived under a vast silver cloche, which Crawshaw swept away with pantomimic ceremony, including his impression of a trumpet fanfare, to expose a wobbling mass of mud-green sludge. And what do we have here? Anguille grillé en gelé, sir. Eh? Grilled eels in aspic. Aunt Agatha gripped the table and gagged quietly in disgust. I peered closer at the dish. I don't see any eels, Crawshaw. Awful hard to come by eels, sir, especially on a Sunday. So this is uh, just aspic? Oh, not just aspic, sir. Delicious aspic. He stepped forward. Can I ask you a question, madam? You may ask me a question, she corrected, as aunts are contractually obliged. Do you believe in God? I don't think I've ever seen the blood drain so fast from anyone's face. It was like an avalanche at an abattoir. I beg your pardon? God, madam, are you a fan? A fan? Of the Lord Almighty? How dare you? I began now to fear for my safety as well as his. Stone the crows, just a bit of chit-chat, no need to get aerated. He blew a cheerful raspberry and left. He has to go. He's only just arrived. He has to go. And valets don't grow on trees. He has to go. Leaving me with no one? There was a dark Macbethian silence, during which one name hung ghostly and unspoken between us. Eventually and historically, Aunt Agatha blinked. I wonder... She mused, aiming for indifference and missing by a mile. If Jeeves has found another position. I mentally applauded Mayfair's Moriarty, who had yet again picked the pocket of auntly psychology. I expect so. I've lost count of the attempts to poach him. You know, Bertram... I think you were rather too hasty in dismissing Jeeves. I see that now. One has a duty towards servants. Absolutely. A loyalty. Of course. Noblesse oblige. How very well put. Perhaps if you offered Jeeves a fulsome apology, he might return. I will telephone him first thing in the morning. Oh, do that, Bertram, and let this be a lesson to you. Champagne, I hollered, flying back through the green baize door. Jeeves popped the magnum that was already in his hands. Very good, sir. You're a brave man, Crawshaw. Oh, thank you, sir. Recklessly so. Do you have any idea how close you came? I've encountered several ladies like Mrs. Gregson, sir, and their bark is generally worse than their bite. Tell that to her hospitalised milkman. But however did you conjure such a gruesome bruiser? 
He owes much to a butler I knew at Lanaba Castle. He had, if you'll forgive the expression, sir, gone completely John John. Well, it was a striking performance. Miss McCausland is fortunate to have secured your services. Thank you, sir. I look forward to starting in her employ. Incidentally, sir, I'm sorry about the china bust and the whole thing's just got a little out of hand. I think nothing of it, Crawshaw. It's a negligible price to pay, given the alternative. And now it is my happy duty to fire you. Thank you, sir. And you, Jeeves, are rehired. Thank you, sir. I raise my glass in a toast to Henri Grillet Angelet and all who sail in her. Only a little while later did it occur to me that Jeeves had never much liked my bust of W.G. Grace. Thank you very much for listening. And may I remind you that Jeeves and the Leap of Faith is available at 1899 from John Sandoz. We still have some signed copies, copies that is to say with signed book plates, for the author remains in New York because of lockdown. <laughs>